Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Books podcast. Uh, with us today is Yale Zara from the University of Mississippi. She has a new book out called The Revolution Within, State Institutions and Unarmed Resistance in Palestine, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, welcome, Yale. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, what do you think uh, the main contribution of the book is? What do you want people to know about it? Um, absolutely. So um, the main question, let me start with the, the main question that inspired me to write this book is why do some people participate in risky anti-regime resistance while other often pretty similar people abstain? And this is both a classic question about collective action and at the same time I think a very human question about why ordinary people do extraordinary things. Um, and I was inspired to take up this question in the context of Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation um, for a few reasons. Um, first, this is obviously a very important case, um, not only geopolitically speaking, um, but also in the growing literature on nonviolent and unarmed resistance in political science. And at the same time, it's also um, still a case in which the nonviolent or unarmed aspects are often drowned out in some of the public discourse and conversation. Um, and so it's a very important case, um, but we know relatively little about um, participation in this setting. And in fact, um, due to the difficulties of data collection, we know very little about participation in uprisings around the world in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was really motivated to explore this um, and particularly also because existing theoretical explanations of participation didn't really line up with what I was seeing in the Palestinian case. Um, and so to give you um, just one example, um, one of the big explanations, both in the scholarly literature, but also in terms of conventional wisdom, is group grievances, mm -hmm. and specifically in this case, national grievances. And um, there, there's no doubt that nationalist grievances were extremely important in this case. And in fact, it's hard to think that without them, many Palestinians would have chosen to incur the high risks and costs of resisting Israeli occupation. But they were also incredibly pervasive. Hmm. Um, so in 1982, Time magazine actually commissioned this poll in the Palestinian territories where it found that 98% of Palestinians support an independent Palestinian state, the main goal of the Palestinian national movement. So for a survey question, this is in an incredible kind of <laughs> level of unanimity and support. There's near universal support for this. But of the almost 100% of Palestinians who share this goal, only about one third of them actually participate in resistance. That's, so, yeah, that, yeah, and that's really that, and that's really interesting then. And so, so mostly, uh, what the book is focusing on then is like the emergence of this kind of mass nonviolent uh, protest movement, uh, kind of culminating in the Intifada in the late nineteen eighties. Absolutely. So, when and why do individuals participate in resistance? And by extension, when will movements achieve the kind of mass participation, mm -hmm. broad-based participation, that they really need in order to be successful. And one of the things which is really interesting about that, the way you set this up, is the kind of what do you need to know 
if you're going to do nonviolent resistance. And, and you, make a, you make a really good point that you need to know that there's going to be numbers, that uh, you need to know it's going to be mass and not just uh, you walk out of the street corner and get arrested. That's right. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as, as you observe in this case and in many other cases, even kind of going in, you know, to the vicinity of a protest to try to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, get a sense of the situation could actually put you at risk um, of arrest. And so this is where my argument comes in. It's really an argument about um, who is better able to get this kind of information and who has more capacity to participate in protests. So given that almost everyone has these really strong grievances, mm-hmm. who has the capacity to then act on those grievances and really challenge Israeli occupation? What's really interesting about that and, and, and the, the research is that, you know, I would have gone in assuming that it would be civil society organizations that would provide that, you know, and, and yet your findings kind of point in a different direction. Um, absolutely. And this was also kind of one of the key things that motivated me to write this book, because as you point out, Civil society organizations have been really important in a number um, of other contexts, and there's a, really a bedrock of social movement theory and what we know about social mm. movements. Um, and yet, at the beginning of this period that I'm looking at, and the book focuses um, on a period in Palestinian protests beginning in 1978 after the Camp David Accords, and then um, ending in 1989, which is um, the end of the first real mass phase of the mm-hmm. first Palestinian Intifada. And so during really the first half of this period, Palestinian civil society is, is weak. It's been hobbled, you know, first by um, British and then Jordanian and Egyptian and now Israeli control. And it's really just starting right. to emerge from this. So Palestinians don't have the, at this time the kind of strong civil society organizations and networks that are typically thought to facilitate protest. Um, and so I was interested in exploring in the absence of these organizations, how and why do people protest? And you end up looking in some interesting places. So, so you've, yeah. got, you've got three big places mm-hmm. where you see this happening. So walk us through them. Absolutely. So I, um, the main argument that the book makes is that under these conditions, when people have these strong grievances and yet weak civil society organizations, that integration into state institutions paradoxically makes them more likely to resist the state. Um, And I look at two main types of state institutions. Um, First, I looked at state-controlled schools. Um, So I look at schools in the occupied territories, which like all um, Palestinian Palestinian Mm -hmm. public institutions were, um, with the imposition of Israeli occupation, placed under Israeli direct control. Um, And then I also look at prisons and courts, what I call disciplinary institutions, as another form of state institution, Mm -hmm. and then evaluate the theory that I developed there. So I think it's become a fairly um, kind of widespread view now that the importance of prisons uh, for uh, kind of nurturing insurgencies or um, like Muslim brothers all Mm -hmm. being thrown in the same prison cell and kind of exchanging ideas and that sort of thing. Um, What's unique about uh, nonviolent resistance in in that context, Uh, people who are sharing prison space? Yeah, absolutely. So I think... um, you know, the, the difference about this book is that it focuses less on what's going on among prisoners inside the prison, which I think has been more widely mm-hmm. covered, as you note, but actually what's going on among this wider group of family and friends surrounding the prisoner. 
And here I'm really building on some prior work by the Israeli sociologist, Maya Rosenfeld, mm -hmm. um, and on um, her argument about imprisonment as a collective and social experience that affects not only the prisoner, but the prisoner's family and, and wider mm -hmm. um, community. And so um, Rosenfeld um, argues that when someone is imprisoned, the people around him are um, brought into these um, other social networks of prisoners' families mm -hmm. and friends, and this contributes to their politicization. And so building on her argument, I argue that these kind of extra-local networks and interactions increase individuals' capacity for protest and mm -hmm. in turn make them more likely to protest. And in the book, I find that the imprisonment, using my survey data and the imprisonment of a relative or friend, makes people who were previously politically inactive significantly more likely mm -hmm. to begin protesting for the first time. And then, on the, and then, when you come to the schools, I mean, I think it's not um, not unusual to expect that like students are going to be politically motivated, and that's like a fairly common thing. But I was surprised at how young you saw mm -hmm. this this happening the the experience of of in like middle school level um, kids who who you saw these dynamics happening. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, in fact, the main impact of schooling, and I can um, really kind of dis. Um, you know, disaggregate or kind of untangle this in the survey data, the main impact of schooling really comes from preparatory schooling, um, which is grades seven to nine, middle school or junior mm -hmm. high school. Um, and I argue that this is because when um, kids are first integrated into an institutional environment that facilitates collective action. Um, and so maybe let me take kind of a step back mm -hmm. and just give a little bit more of a glimpse into the argument of the book. So, um, the reason that integration into state institutions um, has this impact on protest is, um, I argue, because they give individuals informational and organizational advantages for um, protest that are generally, um, you know, individuals in closed societies, informational mm -hmm. and organizational advantages for protest, the people who are not integrated um, in these institutions don't have to the same extent. So they yeah. give this kind of comparative advantage um, for protest. And one of the ways they do that is that they join individuals in larger, more diverse, and therefore information-rich social networks, which provide them with access to political information about protest mm -hmm. that's uh, generally not available um, so it, it provides them with information from outside their immediate social circle and outside their community and that they can't find in the mass media right. or in other sources. So um, going back to your question about kids, um, when kids are enter the middle school or the junior high school, it's the first time that they're brought into this kind of institutional environment and into these kind of extra local social networks. So these schools are gathering together youth mm. from urban and rural areas and from really diverse social and geographical backgrounds and bringing them into these networks that then give them access to information about protest that's coming from far outside yeah. their home community and that they wouldn't otherwise have exposure to. And, and, and it's kind of interesting there because 
that's a different mechanism from what people often see in the schools, especially in universities, where it's actually political parties or political movements that are recruiting and actually organizing. And this seems to be operating a bit differently. There's some of that at work, too. So the thing Even is, in middle school? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. In middle school. Absolutely. Yeah. So the thing is, is that the very same informational and organizational advantages that make individuals in schools and other state institutions more likely to protest also make them a really attractive target for political activists who want to organize people to protest. So because of these very, very same reasons, we see um, PLO activists um, really trying to reach into schools and other state institutions and then forging these networks of protest within them. And so this is one of the big um, changes um, that we see. And one of the nice things about Mm -hmm. this time period I'm looking at in the book is that you see um, change in the strength of civil society over the course of this period. Mm -hmm. And so what happens later in the period when PLO activists start building civil society organizations in the occupied territories, and then we, is that we also see them then building networks, um, both kind of top down into these institutions, but also across mm-hmm. um, these institutions in a way that brings these different centers of protest together and then gives the movement added coherence and coordination. But it's really the information is the key thing for you, though. It's the way the information flows. Um, That's a big part of it, information um, in terms of the networks. And also, once you have that information in the network, um, communication and coordination, so that information flowing quickly and easily. Um, And then also the safety and numbers and Mm -hmm. the um, information about the size and strength of crowds and the risks of protest um, that is going on in these schools. Um, and other um, institutions. And so when, when you get up to, to the Intifada, then it, it seems like there would be uh, some kind of like tipping moment where once there's enough people out there in the streets that you wouldn't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, um, absolutely. So I, I think that's uh, true, um, you know, in the sense that I think one of the contributions of the book is really helping us to understand um, what's going on kind of in the earlier phases of a mm-hmm. movement um, that are not, uh, you know, that are not typically looked at. Yeah. So before before that tipping moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, so the book does include the Intifada, but I think that the, um, you know, the contribution, uh, you know, one of the big contributions is helping us to understand, you know, this instance before you just have, you know, mass crowds in the streets, um, you know, in, in many, right. many places that can be readily observed and perhaps at lower risk than before. And that's, that's, it's one of the one of the reasons why this is a good case for, for you and, and for these theoretical questions is because, you know, people might have forgotten just how comprehensive and, and large scale the Intifada was, but I think it did kind of come out of nowhere for a lot of people. And so you can show that it actually didn't come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. that there was this groundwork, but it's not the groundwork that people think it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And in fact, if you also just look at the data on protests, um, you know, more, uh, not kind of macro, but kind of higher level data on protests, you really see this kind of upward trend in protest, um, you know, that starts in the late 70s in the period, um, you know, where I start looking, um, Mm -hmm. you know, at this question um, and continuing with the first intifada. You don't see any kind of dramatic spike um, with the first intifada. Right. So 
let's take a step back because uh, one of the other interesting things about the book is you have kind of a unique survey method and uh, kind of a, a, a very, um, I think, innovative way of generating the data that you're drawing on. So, so talk us through this a little bit and, you know, what you did and how you constructed the survey and why you think it's a good way of getting at the questions that you're asking. Um, absolutely. So um, this is really a question about um, individual behavior. And so at the very um, kind of most basic level, we need individual level data. Um, and interview data can be really, really informative and useful. And I also use th those kind of data in the book. But the, the issue with interview data is while they can give tremendous insight into people's motivations and the structures they're interacting in and the various incentives they're under, it's hard to know how representative those insights then are. Mm -hmm. So then this is really the comparative advantage of a randomized survey, is it produces more representative and generalizable data, um, which is important if we really want to understand mass mm -hmm. participation. And non-participation. And non-participation, that's right, that's a key point, thank you. Um, and so for this um, project, I conducted a randomized survey of former participants and non-participants in Palestinian resistance to Israeli mm -hmm. occupation in the West Bank. Um, and that was a comprehensive survey done um, throughout the West Bank. It was done in the um, six most populous West Bank governorates in over 68 localities, um, including cities, towns, villages, and refugee camps. Um, and so, um, again, that allows for a more representative and generalizable mm -hmm. um, look at this question. Um, and well, yeah. do you want to, uh, well, no, but it, but, 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 but it wasn't just that though, because you didn't just ask them a normal battery of questions though. And this is one of the things yes. which I think is yeah. the most interesting is because you're asking them about things that happened 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have a really interesting method for trying to get them to tell their stories in a, in a usable way. Thank you. Yeah. So there were a couple challenges with doing the survey and that was really one of the key ones is, um, it's retrospective and we know uh, that in retrospective surveys, memory um, drops off actually very quickly, much more quickly than people often suppose. Just yeah. two years after the event, our memories um, really get much worse. <laughs> I can't even remember Monday. <laughs> exactly. So um, our memories become much worse. And so that was something that I was really concerned about here is people misremembering um, you know, their past behavior or past events. And to try to mitigate this problem, I used an approach uh, that I imported from public health and sociology where it's used widely, which is called a life history calendar approach, or sometimes you hear the words event history calendar. And um, basically what this approach does is it uses a calendar-like questionnaire design. So the survey questionnaire is actually formatted like a calendar. And this approach, better reflects the way that we actually retrieve autobiographical memory, the way we actually um, remember past events and behavior, and so that it allows us to more accurately and completely mm -hmm. remember what happened in the past. Um, and, and so so what does that look like? Like walk mm -hmm. us through, so you, you and you sit down with someone to do an event history calendar, and how does this help you get access to their, their protest behavior? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what it means is that um, well, there's a few things. So often, um, and this was the case in my survey as well, before you even begin kind of the formal, mm -hmm. it's part of the formal interview, but before you begin the main interview um, with kind of your standard survey questions, 
um, you do this kind of memory exercise where you actually um, you remind them of past events that are international or regional or national events, and then you ask them to remember more local and personal mm -hmm. events. So there's this kind of memory um, priming exercise right. to begin with. Um, but then after the fact, um, what this looks like is when they're completing the questionnaire, um, a standard survey questionnaire works in this kind of um, top-down, general to specific way. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you know, I may ask you um, about your spring 2020 semester, and then asks you about this POMEPS podcast. And um, a, a life history calendar would do something like that too, but it also proceeds chronologically. Mm -hmm. So it allows people to remember things chronologically by working through a calendar, um, and that's actually. Um, a major way that we actually do remember uh, right. things in the past. So I, I thought that I took part in these protests, but now I realize that I was only in elementary school then. I couldn't have. Mm -hmm. And yeah, exactly right. Because you can also, another advantage is then by comparing these different kind of sequences, you can actually see when your sequences do not line up. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you one more question then. So, you know, now that you've done this study of the Palestinian uh, mobilization in, in that historical period and developed these methods, you know, what, what, um, what are the implications of that for kind of looking beyond that case? Like, what, what would that lead you to look at as you tried to make sense of other uh, protest incidents or trying to, you know, understand other surprising events out there in the Middle East or in, in the broader uh, mm -hmm. the broader world. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, I think kind of an ideal exploration of these questions would require additional um, micro-level survey and interview evidence. Uh, but in the book, I do, in the conclusion, I do explore two other cases in a more limited way. Um, and specifically, I look at South Africa and the second wave of the anti-apartheid movement, as well as in Egypt, uh, before 2011, and specifically the mm -hmm. Egyptian labor movement there. Um, and in both of those cases, you see kind of a similar pattern where state institutions played an important um, you know, and surprising role. And so um, in Egypt, for example, um, you see the state uh, workers and state employees launched the biggest and most impactful um, collective actions Mm -hmm. of uh, the 2000s, and this is something that Jill Bainin has written about as well. Um, and they also launched the most frequent number of strikes. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this was without a strong civil society, because although Egypt had a more developed civil society, labor organizations were very weak. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really kind of coming out of um, state factories and um, of government uh, right. employees. Great. So then if, if, if you were looking like uh, kind of around the world and, uh, you know, trying to, you know, take these insights, uh, you know, if I wanted to anticipate the emergence of a protest somewhere, would I be looking mm -hmm. for lots of state institutions? Would I be uh, what would I be looking for? Yeah. So I, that's a really good question. Um, and I think that, um, you know, in many ways, my book is what my book can really tell us is given the organization of protest, mm -hmm. um, who participates right, and why, okay. and when will mass participation um, emerge. But what I can tell you in response to your question is that 
you don't necessarily need to be looking for strong civil society organizations. So it's typically thought that if there are not these strong civil society organizations in place, then we won't see protests uh, because even the most aggrieved groups just simply won't have the capacity to protest without these kinds of independent organizations and networks. And what this book shows is that that, in fact, is not necessary. And we can see, um, and protest, you know, can emerge mm-hmm. in a much kind of wider range of cases than is sometimes supposed. Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with Yale Zara, University of Mississippi, about her new book, The Revolution Within, uh, just published by Cambridge University Press. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. Mm-hmm.